Well, Genesis 44 and 45, here we have the, uh, the reconciliation of Joseph with his brothers. And it's, uh, it's an amazing story, really. It's an amazing story of forgiveness, of somebody who really gets there in the end. And I would submit that issues of forgiveness are at the root of very many spiritual problems. People become uh, offside with certain people within the ecclesia, within the family of God, and they, they push off. Uh, forever quoting what was done to them, etc., uh, etc. Et and <clears throat> the struggle for forgiveness is really, really huge. And as I say, I think it affects all of us, and it affects all of us far more than we might like to admit. Because what for some persons might just be uh, nothing, a, a minor offence, for other people, they stew on those words, particularly words as well as actions, for the rest of their lives. They keep on playing the tape over and over. And <clears throat> this is the, the root of a lot of depression, a lot of uh, loss of zeal, a loss of love for the brotherhood and ultimately for God because our attitude to our brothers and sisters is really our attitude to the Lord Jesus. And if you're forever offside with them because of how you feel you've been treated, then in the end you end up offside with God. <clears throat> and so forgiveness is absolutely crucial. And I would say that with Joseph you have really the parade example of forgiveness. Now, it's also clear that Joseph is set up as a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is really very clear. He was declared to be the uh, <clears throat> Zaphnath Paneah, the saviour of the world, and in a sense he was. And he does various things to the brothers, I think not out of any desire to, to hurt them or to play mind games with them, although on the surface that is what it could appear, but because he wants to bring them to repentance. A lot of the stuff that goes on in our lives is so complex, we sense the hand of God there, but we may not actually discern correctly the meaning which is intended to be attached to the event. And a lot of what God is doing, well, all of what God is doing, is to lead us, I think, to recognition of our sin and <clears throat> to realize how we have hurt others and to put us in the position of those that we have hurt. And you see this very clearly in the life of Jacob and Esau, that Jacob was time and again put in the situations that he had put others in. He deceived his father, so he was deceived uh, re regarding his, uh, his marriage. And so it goes on. And it's not that what goes around comes around. That is too simplistic uh, a way to look at this. So I think these things happen so that we might realize the effect of our actions upon others, if we are spiritually minded and if we're perceptive and responsive to the way that the Lord is leading us. Now, it's tempting to just talk just solely about Joseph as a type of Christ, because it's so, it's so clear that he was. <clears throat> and I wonder if these chapters here that talk about what he does to his brothers in order to bring them to repentance and self-knowledge if this, in fact, looks ahead to the behavior of the Lord Jesus towards natural Israel in the last days, in order to bring them to realize what they did to their brother, the Lord Jesus. Putting him in the pit is like uh, killing him, him coming out of the pit, 
uh, and going and saving Egypt is, of course, looking forward to the resurrection of Jesus and what, uh, what he did in Egypt and the world subsequently. Now, he says to them, verse 5, Isn't this that from which my author, his servant says to them, Isn't this that from which my Lord drinks, and by which he indeed divines? He's, the servant is saying that, look, this is Joseph's cup, and Joseph knows what you have done because of his cup. Now, given the, the very clear, uh, typical significance of all this, we cannot fail to see a reference to the cup of the Lord Jesus, which is, of course, what we take at the breaking of bread. And going to 1 Corinthians 11, we see that the, the Lord's cup at the breaking of bread is connected very much with the idea of judgment, both judgment to come and judgment as we experience it now. Uh, if you look over at 1 Corinthians 11, verse 29, I would like to offer you a, a retranslation, which as far as I can see is legitimate in terms of the, the Greek text. He that eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself. Full stop. If he does not discern the body of the Lord... This is why many among you are weak and, sick, and sickly, and not a few sleep. In other words, by our breaking of bread, we are, in that sense, eating and drinking judgment to ourselves. And he's saying, make sure that, as he goes on in the chapter to say, make sure that you don't come together for your condemnation. That's verse 34. The idea is that in taking the Lord's cup, we, as it were, judge ourselves. We have a, a foretaste of the Day of Judgment. And if, taking that cup, we condemn ourselves, realizing I am unworthy, convicted by the breaking of bread meeting, by what we remember there, if we are convicted that I am a sinner, I would not have done what he did. Then verse 32 becomes so true. If we would judge, and I think he means condemn, if we would condemn ourselves, we will not be condemned. He doesn't mean we can get out of being judged at the Day of Judgment if we judge ourselves. I think what he means is, because, you know, we should all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and be judged. I think what he means is, if in our response now to the breaking of bread, we would condemn ourselves in this life, then we will not need to be condemned at the Day of Judgment. So we have a foretaste, a pre-run of the Day of Judgment each time we break bread. Now, Back in the type, it was by his cup that Joseph discerned people, that he discerned the sin of his brethren. Now, I'd like to connect that with a verse in the Proverbs that talks of how the spirit or the mind, the conscience of man, is the candle of the Lord. Now, of course, God can see and know all things as he wishes. Uh, but it seems to me that in all that he does, he works through a kind of mechanism. And in his knowledge of us, I would submit that one way that he knows our mind is to ask us to know our own mind. The spirit of man is the candle of the Lord and searches the inward parts of the belly. So when we break bread, we show as we take that cup we show to the Lord our attitude. If your mind is on nothing more than the sin of the fellow sitting down the front on the left, or the, 
I don't know the, how the curtains haven't been drawn properly and why on earth did the, the brethren decide to buy such hideous red chairs uh, or whatever it might be. The, these sort of trivial issues that clutter human thinking. If that's really all it means to us, and we take the, the cup, sip it, and pass it to the fellow next to us, if that's really all it is, well, then that's what we're signalling to God and to the Lord Jesus. That's all, all it is to me, a bit of ritual. And so this does heighten, I think, the solemnity and the importance of the breaking of bread and of our self-examination there. Because if you're really doing what you ask to do, which is to focus upon him there upon the cross, it is inevitable that you come to self-knowledge that you know yourself this has to be and this is why the the cross the the image of the death of jesus dying there as he did for us is so powerful because a man or woman cannot really behold it and walk away somehow indifferent we are gripped by it rather like the centurion who beats upon his uh, breast and the only other time, and it's also in Luke's uh, Gospel, that that phrase is used is about the, the, uh, the publican who beats upon his breast and says, God have mercy upon me, a sinner. In other words, the, the cross, the, the cup of wine that symbolizes it in physical terms to us, is intended to elicit self-knowledge and self-examination. And so Joseph does this to his brothers, and as I say, I think it's all clearly intended to be understood like that in the, in the prototype, which is Joseph discerning the sin of his brothers through his cup and using it to get them to fess up, as it were, before him. Now, the, the whole thing is, of course... <laughs> set up by Joseph to try to elicit within them a recognition that they have lied for so long about the, uh, what they did to Joseph. They made out that he'd been killed by a wild animal, and they had repeated that so many times that they ended up believing it. They told their father that, and even under stress, when they're interviewed by Joseph, they come out with the same story. They'd repeated the lie so often that they really thought it was true just as, of course, we can. And that is the problem with lying on any level, dishonesty in self-talk. The more you keep it up, the more you end up thinking that that is genuinely what happened. Those imaginations you may have about another person uh, end up, in your mind, being actually what happened. So then, he, he's trying to get them to see that they really had sinned in what they did to him. And of course, this is very similar, I think, uh, to the situation of natural Israel in the time of the end. They have effectively lied to themselves for so long about Jesus of Nazareth and his death. And the whole situation in the last days, however it will politically manifest itself, is in order to bring them to that recognition. Now, Joseph sets them up in the whole thing with, uh, with Benjamin, when he says, you know, leave your brother Benjamin here and you, you go back, uh, etc. Um, he tempts them to do the same thing to Benjamin as they did to him, to sacrifice their kid brother, their younger brother, thoughtless to their father's pain, in order to save their own skins. 
But they learn the lesson this time. They realize, as they have said before, that we are verily guilty about our brother. They mean Joseph. And the way they sort of beg with him um, you know, not to do this, to think of their old father, etc., you really feel a, a certain sincerity there. And they come to realize, <clears throat> verse 18, you are even as Pharaoh. And that's a, a great window, I think, into the nature of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is functionally as God, but of course he is not God himself in the uh, Trinitarian sense. And they come to perceive the greatness of, of Joseph. Um, and falling down before him, of course, they, they fulfill the, the dream that he had so long ago that touched their conscience and irritated them so deeply that it led them to the jealousy that, uh, that did what it did to, uh, to Joseph. And, you know, it's so exact, really, with, with the conscience of Israel about what they did to the Lord Jesus. And so, <clears throat> in the end... Chapter 45, verse 1, Joseph could not refrain himself any longer. And so he sort of uh, blurts it all out, look, I'm Joseph. And the implication of that, he could not refrain himself any longer. I think the implication is that he intended to drag out the whole, the whole scene, but he just couldn't. His love for them caused him to cut short whatever program he had of, uh, let's say, education of the brothers. You remember the words of the Lord Jesus, Matthew 24, verse 22, For the elect's sake the days shall be shortened. And uh, that's actually the same uh, Hebrew word in Isaiah 42, verse 14. Uh, uh, sorry, when we've got here that Joseph couldn't refrain himself, uh, it's the same word in Isaiah 42:14 about how God can no longer refrain himself in the last days. So it would seem that, as again Peter puts it, the days will be shortened in the last days. That the, uh, the plan that God did have, as it were, will be cut short. And why will it be cut short? Because he cannot refrain himself, because his love is so great. Now this issue of exactly when the Lord Jesus will come, the calendar date, if you like, is difficult because maybe there isn't a calendar date. Uh, it is to some degree variable, and the variable in this case is clearly the repentance of the brothers. All they say, talking about their dad, you know, chapter 44, verse 20, we have a father, an old man, a child of his old age, a little one, his brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother, his father loves him, da da da. All they say, from 20 down to the end there, is absolutely true. I mean, okay, they say, well, our other brother is dead. Well, they sort of genuinely believe that. Um, but their, their recounting of the situation there is absolutely true. And truth was not something, I think, I think that came easily to these guys. They were living so many lies. But I think that Joseph perceived they'd got there in the end. And so he can't refrain himself. So the variable is, in this case, the repentance of Joseph's brothers. And it does seem to me that the Lord's coming in terms of a calendar date is to some degree dependent upon the repentance of Israel. That is why I am unimpressed by all the various attempts that have been made to put together 
latter-day prophecy from, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, etc., Joel, into some sort of uh, framework of chronology, that this is what will happen. This will happen, then this invader will come, and then that invader shall come, and then this will happen, uh, and so forth. Uh, I find all of those unimpressive in terms of their... Uh, loyalty to the text, I'm always thinking, yeah, but what about this? Or, well, I'm not sure that's the right way to interpret that. And yet I haven't got anything better to put in its place. And in fact, I have given up trying to construct these possible uh, chronologies of events in the last days. And I think that's because there isn't uh, a set uh, program, because it's all open, depending upon the speed of Israel's repentance. Now, we can hasten the day of the Lord's coming, according to 2 Peter uh, chapter 3, and one of the ways I think we do that is to prepare Israel for repentance. And that is why I am all for, very strongly for, an all-out witness to Jewish people. And I call it a witness because in terms of people turning around and throwing their kipper down and saying, sure, amen, I accept the gospel of Jesus, I repent, I'll be baptized, you know, that may or may not happen. But the point is that by our witness, we will be preparing them to repent in the last days, which are, you know, are upon us, it seems. So then, the brethren meeting Joseph at the end here, it's got a lot of echoes really of the judgment seat of, of Christ, there they are as sinners arraigned before him but he knows the outcome um, and he knows that he's going to accept them right from the start the whole purpose of the day of judgment is not for the Lord's benefit, it's not like a human judgment that uh, gathers information and makes a decision the whole thing is for our benefit I mean, if there were no concept of Judgment Day, that would mean that, let's say, Jesus came, came back right now, and we would be, what, straight in the kingdom, if there was no judgment? And, uh, you know, those who are dead in Christ will be raised, and that's it, in the kingdom. You know, if that happened, right at this minute, as, as I'm talking, I mean, we would enter God's kingdom really quite unprepared, not understanding ourselves, the extent of his grace, the extent of what we did to other people, etc., uh, not understanding them, uh, it just wouldn't be the right thing. And so there needs to be this preparation. And that is why we have the Day of Judgment, the whole concept of it. Now, notice, of course, that at the Day of Judgment that they experienced before Joseph, I mean, he's in tears, he's highly emotional, and he's trying to persuade them that actually it's all okay. Now, seeing that emotion is still a part of God's nature and the nature of the Lord Jesus, I cannot imagine our meeting with the Lord Jesus at the Day of Judgment as being an unemotional event for him. He will rejoice, or God will rejoice over you with singing. Zephaniah says, um, this is the joy that he will have at us coming into his kingdom. Now, verse 4, chapter 45, the brothers <clears throat> sort of slink away from him because he says to them, come near to me, please. And they came near. Pastor John 2.28, in the Greek anyway, talks about how the, the rejected will slink away 
from his presence at the Day of Judgment. So they stand there, feeling absolutely condemned, <clears throat> uh, which was, of course, quite right. And he seeks to persuade them that it's all okay. My love for you and my forgiveness of you is greater than all the barriers <clears throat> that, <clears throat> that you have put between us by your sin. And this really is what the Day of Judgment is going to be all about. You remember the, the parable of the Lord Jesus, that he will come and say to us, well done, when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. And we will say, but no, I didn't. That's quite a, quite a neck to argue back with the Lord Jesus at the Day of Judgment. You must be pretty persuaded. And that's how it will be. But Lord, no, this is not for me. Maybe you got the wrong number. I'm, I'm Duncan, you know, I, I, I didn't do that, I'm not uh, whoever, King David, I'm not the Apostle Paul, uh, no, I didn't, and the point is, yes, you did, I see you as wonderful, this is the whole truth of imputed righteousness, that we shall stand faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. And he explains to them in verse, uh, verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve you, to save you to save you alive by a great deliverance. Now that's picked up and quoted, Hebrews 2 verse 3, about the work of Jesus on the cross, that great salvation, that great salvation, the world's redemption. I think that phrase also may have some uh, look back to Joseph's work with, uh, with Egypt and saving Egypt and the world from famine. So then, then we will realize the truth of the simple statement that Jesus means saviour, that Jesus is my saviour. Now, finally, they, they come to uh, accept this, and they send away to get their, get their father. Um, and verse, verse 24, he, he makes this little comment. He said to them, see that you don't quarrel on the way. And I think that is the thought I would like to leave with us, that we also have experienced that great salvation. And now we go away to take that good news to others. We go away from this place to take that good news to others in our lives and the meetings that we should pray for with people every day. And see that you don't quarrel on the way. Having received that great salvation, that is what we should go away from this place in awe with, absolutely awed by it. And if you're really awed by it, then we will achieve that unity between each other. That is enough to convert the world. We will not quarrel by the way.